Good morning. Good to see everybody. After a nice holiday break, it's good to be back. Uh, my name is Stephen, one of the pastors here. And I, for starters, Happy New Year. It's a brand new year. Wow, a lot of excitement about that around here. It is the year 2020. Even as I say that, I feel like that's more like the opening to a science fiction book or a science fiction movie than it is just a statement of fact. Um, and for those of us who are a little bit older, maybe sometimes you step back from your life. I do this through my kids. I, I look at their life and I compare what they're experiencing, what they got for Christmas, what they, their everyday life is like. And I compare it to my own and think, man, I, we are living in a science fiction story. I mean, there's a lot of amazing things when I step back and think about just my own life. A lot of things that have changed, a lot of progress and a lot of changes that have taken place. But at this time of year, we are also aware of the ways that we've fallen short of predictions, um, ways that we've thought we would be somewhere in the year 2020 that we weren't quite. I don't know if you've seen any of these articles, uh, but there's been a bunch of them circulating around, and I always enjoy reading them because it's kind of like, what, what did people expect the future to be like? And the further back you go, the further off we are. You know, there's some crazy things that people thought, but even more recently, there are some things that were predicted to happen by 2020 that just... I'm sorry, they're not going to happen. And I mean, the first one, and this is the one that's been true for my whole life, flying cars, okay? I mean, those of us who grew up in the 70s and 80s, this is what, the, this is what 2020 was supposed to be like, was George Jetson's world of flying around in a car. Um, that's not going to happen this year. Uh, I mean, Uber did get our hopes up. In 2017, they said that by the year 2020, they would have a flying taxi, they're still working on it. Uh, that's the bad news, uh, or, or that's the good news. The bad news is, though, none of you can pull out your Uber app today and call a flying Uber to come and pick you up. Um, what else? Uh, none of us are going to take a vacation to Mars or to the moon this year. That is not going to happen. But in 2009, if you go back just a little over 10 years, it looked like that was going to happen. Space tourism was the big thing. I mean, Elon Musk was one of the guys who kind of said, hey, we're going we're gonna to go to the moon and we're going to take, take tourists to the moon. And, and eventually by 2020, he said we would have a manned space flight to Mars. Guess what? Didn't happen. But give Elon credit, he's still working on it and making ugly trucks too, apparently. <laughs> But there is one prediction about 2020, not technological, but there is a, a prediction about 2020 uh, that I think, unfortunately, is going to come true. And it's not technology-related. Um, it, it seems that uh, continuing trends that started probably 50 to 60 years ago, depending on you know, what you read from social scientists, it seems like America is set in 2020 to become more divided and more polarized, more separated and isolated within pockets and groups than we probably ever have been before. <clears throat> Sadly, that looks like that's going to become a reality. Now, let me stop right here because some of you are panicking a little bit because you're thinking it's the first Sunday of 2020 and we're already going to talk about politics? No, that's not where we're going today, I promise. Uh, 2020 is an election year. You're probably going to hear a lot about the polarization and the divisiveness that exists within our political system this year. We may even talk about it on a Sunday, but that's not where we're going today. The reality is that in America today, the polarization that we see in the political process is kind of just like the tip of the iceberg. 
It's the most obvious thing, and it's the thing that draws the most attention. It's the thing we hear the most about for a lot of good reasons. Um, it, it draws a lot of media attention. But, it, you know, there's a lot of other kinds of cracks and fissures that have formed in the foundation of American society that have divided and separated us. Um, I read a, one of the books that I read last year was a book called Coming Apart, uh, which was all about how socioeconomically the rich and the poor have gotten further and further apart. There, there have always, despite our sort of mythology about America being kind of an all-middle-class society, there have always been stratas and layers of different economic levels. There have always been rich and there have always been poor. But they, they lived closer together, both financially and physically, than they used to. They, they used to live closer together than they do now. They, as over time, the rich and the poor have moved further and further apart. The rich have gotten richer, the poor have gotten poorer, the rich live in different zip codes than the poor, and they're, we're separated from one another. So we're divided, we're polarized socioeconomically. But that's not what I want to talk, that's not the kind of polarization that I want to talk about today. Um, the polarization that I want to talk about today and that we're going to kick off talking about in this series is generational in nature. There are fissures and divides that have, that have begun to divide us generationally. Now, I need to stop right here and just talk about this word generation a little bit because it gets used in different ways. Um, and I want to be clear about how we're talking about the word generation. Now, um, in one sense, the, the purest sense, when you go further back into the, the origins of this word, uh, generation was about, it was about familial generations, family generations. So some of you maybe took uh, a picture and sent it out as a Christmas card, or you probably got one, I certainly did, that said, four generations of our family. So that would be you with, in the picture with your grandparents, or with one of your grandparents, or great aunts or uncles, with your parents, or one of their brothers and sisters, yourself, and then your kids. That's four generations of your family. And so that's a common way of thinking about generations. But over time, we recognized that family was, that there were other groupings in broader society that it, was, that it was helpful to be able to think about groups of people in a way based on when they were born. And this idea about a social generation, social generations are cohorts of people who are born in the same date range and who share similar cultural experiences. The, the concept of, of social generations became helpful for scientists as they began to look at trends in culture and society and try to understand what was happening and what was happening over time. Because groups of people who were born within the same date range shared similar cultural experiences, they could look at them and begin to figure out, based on their responses to questions when they were polled, they could see over time how these groups of people changed the way that they thought and the way that they acted within the economy and within the political realm and within just within life. And so social scientists began to realize that this was really helpful, and so they began doing studies and as more and more uh, research began to come out about this, it began to get disseminated out into the public. Um, we became more and more familiar with this, con this concept of generations, that a gener generation was the people that were born around the same time of, as you and who shared similar cultural experiences. Uh, now, I'm not going to talk too much about the generations that are living today, but I, because Norton's going to come back next week and he's going to talk a lot about the, the current living generations. There are six current living generations in America right now, uh, but I do want to share them with you so you know what they are. So the first generation, and, and this one I mention only because they are still technically around, but there's not many of them, the greatest generation. Uh, born between 1901 and 1927, this is the generation that fought World War II. Uh, this was 
So they have been dubbed the greatest generation. And these names, by the way, these names come from social scientists who, who give them some moniker. Often the media kind of gets involved to, 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 and latches on to one name or another. Sometimes the names change. Uh, and the date ranges can be frustrating because if you're a very sort of like hard and fast literal person, you're like, you're like the generations are different groups of ages. That's true. There's not like a set date range that a generation is. So usually it's somewhere between 15 and 20 years, but it, because it's grouped around cultural experiences, social scientists, often the, the, the boundaries are somewhat elastic uh, in nature. So the greatest generation is the first that's still living in America today, and it's the smallest. Uh, the next smallest is the silent generation. So these are the people born between 1928 and 1945. My parents were part of the silent generation. Next, the current largest generation is the baby boomers. So named because of the baby boom that took place when the greatest generation came back from World War II and got busy having babies, the baby boom is reflective of that boom in explosion in population that took place after World War II, born between 1946 and 1964. And then we've got Generation X. That's Wow, there's not many of us. There's not many of us. We're, we're sort of the middle child of generations stuck between the two largest generations in our country. Uh, Generation X was born between 1965 and 1980. Um, and it's, a, it's, it's smaller than the two largest, which are the baby boomers and the millennials. The millennial generation, born between 1981 and 1986. Uh, they are currently the second largest, but here's the good news, millennials. Uh, social scientists say this year you become the largest generation because guess what? Boomers are dying. So, uh, sorry boomers, bad news. You lose, you move to second place in terms of size grouping this year, they're saying. And then last, but certainly not least, is Generation Z. So this is the generation that comes after millennials, um, born between 1997 and 2012, they're not really sure. I put a question mark there because they haven't really capped this generation. Again, this is taking place. I mean, people who are kids who were born in 2012, they're, they're seven or eight. We don't know if they're substantially similar, more similar to the people who were born uh, ahead of them in like 1997, or are they going to be more different? Is there a new generation that's emerging? And so every year, research centers like Pew, Pew Research Center and Gallup and others, they poll people across America and they ask them similar questions to find out, to get an understanding about the way that people think and the way that people act, what are the things that they buy. And they've begun grouping them into these categories. It's very, it's probably very common. You probably every day in your newsfeed see some kind of story about millennials this or boomers that or Gen X isn't saving enough for retirement. That's one I've been hearing a lot about lately. But there's a lot of different things that come out because the research is being put out into the world and as that's become more available and because it's transmittable through the internet, what we end up with is a lot of people making commentary on this research. And at some point, the information, the analysis, it, it felt like it took a turn where journalism and the media latched onto it, and it kind of got weaponized. Like where, where suddenly these statistics, where we were seeking understanding about these generations, it suddenly became a way that we could, we could spin things in a way that were 
increasingly negative. I, I don't know when it started, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I became aware um, as someone who was sort of aging into adulthood and there was this younger generation coming behind that was much larger than millennials, I, I became aware that it seemed like every week there was some article coming out about this new rising generation and how horrible they were. I mean, it's like every single article had something negative to say about millennials. They were lazy. They were narcissistic. They were snowflakes. They all wanted a trophy. They, they, uh, you know, they were technology-obsessed and isolated from one another. All of these really negative things. All of these things were getting lumped on top of an entire generation of people. And I remember thinking, oh, that seems, seems really odd that, that that's that way. And I can kind of remember when I was about their age, they said similar things about Generation X. So that's interesting. So as, as the data continued to come out and these negative article, articles pr proliferated, even the way that the preferences of millennials began to be cast in a negative light. So, so instead of saying that, that the, their preferences were changing towards something else, there were all these articles, just search them. Millennials are killing blank. <laughs> Millennials are, here's a few examples. These are actual articles that I found. I found. Millennials are killing fast, fast casual chain restaurants like Applebee's. If you ask this Gen, Gen Xer, good riddance. <laughs> Thanks, millennials, if you actually did that. Uh, here's an interesting one, napkins. Millennials are killing napkins because they prefer paper towels. That was an actual article. Because millennials are buying more paper towels than napkins, they're killing napkins. Uh, golf, move over Tiger Woods, you're going to be out of business soon. Millennials are killing golf. And lastly, department stores. Millennials are responsible for Sears going out of business somehow. <laughs> on and on and on it goes. So it seemed like there was nothing that millennials could do right. It seemed like as a generation, they were the, the, the whipping generation for everything that was wrong in our society. <clears throat> but then, last year, maybe the end of 2018, millennials had had enough. And they started pushing back. Maybe they were getting older, a little bit more confident, but they began pushing back. And they pushed back in the language of their generation. They pushed back in a two-word dismissive phrase <laughs> delivered via meme. And it was, okay, boomer. <laughs> okay, boomer. The phrase proliferated through the media, through social media. It found its way onto clothing. There were t-shirts. I mean, the memes, the, the dog meme was one, but there were, there were dozens of others. It even showed up in a session of parliament in New Zealand. A 25-year-old Green Party member uh, in, who was a, a, a par member of parliament in New Zealand was giving a speech about the carbon emissions bill that was being passed, and she was getting heckled by an older colleague, and she just shot him an OK Boomer in the middle <laughs> of her speech. It was amazing. She fired back. OK Boomer in the middle of a session of Parliament. Now, generational warfare is nothing new. The old fighting against the young, the young saying the old are old is not a new thing. I mean, remember, it's the boomers who coined the phrase, don't trust anyone over 30. But now they're way past 30. 
And now that they are the largest generation and quickly becoming second place to the millennials, it seems like there's a feud between the two largest generations and it's broken open. And something different is going on, something different than I think the traditional age warfare that's always happened. I think in the culture and the climate, the fractured polarization that we're experiencing, it's just heightened. It's like gasoline on a fire. So led the Washington Post to, to write an article last month declaring that 2019 was the year of OK Boomer and that the generations were at each other's throat. It was the year the article read that it became OK to be ageist. I hadn't really thought about it that way because, I mean, OK Boomer is kind of funny. I mean, it's kind of funny. And when my kids said it to me, my first reaction was like, whoa, 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 I am not a boomer. Back up. I am not. I, we invented the internet. Back up off Generation X. We will hack you and mess up your credit. Leave us alone. That was my first reaction. But then I read this article, and I was really convicted because there was a, there was a quote in this article from an NYU professor, and he said this. He said, people are making age-based generalizations and stereotypes today that you would not be able to get away with about race or background. Insert some other form of racial or ethnic group, and it wouldn't go over well. Could you imagine someone saying something to you at work, and you saying, okay, woman, Okay, Asian. Okay, gay person. I mean, it, I feel uncomfortable even saying that in public, right? It's, it's unbelievable, but we can say, okay, boomer, or okay, millennial, and it's funny. Why is that? That's the culture and the climate that we're in. Somehow it's okay to marginalize and reject people with a two-word phrase simply because of their age. That's the culture of polarization and hostility that we're living in right now. And the question that I want to introduce today and to begin that we're going to explore through this series is what does our faith in Jesus have to say about this polarization that we see around us, around generations? What does our faith in Jesus tell us about intergenerational relationships? What does the Bible have to say? about how we think about the relationships and the tensions that exist and maybe have always existed between older and younger people. So to get us started today, I want to look at two verses of Scripture that I think are representative. There, there are a lot of verses in the Bible. If you search the word generation, you will find 166 different references to the word generation. Now, most of that is more familial generations, but the Bible has a concept of a group of people living at a single time. So the Bible has a lot to say about generations, and I think there's two important foundational ideas that I want to put out for you today, this morning. No reason, uh, no need to pull out your Bible. That's, if you're new to New Denver, we traditionally will take one verse of Scripture and we'll kind of take some time going through it. I'm going to hit pretty quickly two verses of Scripture, and I'm going to move quickly through them, so there's no reason to pull your Bibles out. We're going to put the verses up on the screen in just a minute when I get there. But first of all, I want to set it up because the, the first verse we're going to look at, the first principle that I think uh, we learn about generations from the Bible comes from the Old Testament. 
And even if you're not a Bible person, it's a story that you're familiar with. It's a story that comes out of the book of Exodus. Um, Exodus is the story of the man, a man named Moses who led the Israelite people out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt. If you haven't read it in the Bible, it's okay. You've seen either the Charlton Heston movie or you've seen Prince of Egypt, the, the DreamWorks movie. You, you know this story. It's familiar to you. But in this story, we're going to step into the point where God comes to Moses And he's telling him, you are going to be the person that I send into Egypt to talk to the Pharaoh, to the king of Egypt, and to tell him, it's done. I've heard the cries of my people, the Israelites, in bondage and in slavery in Egypt. And I'm sending you, Moses, to be my emissary to Pharaoh to tell him to let them go, to set them free. And God's appearing to Moses. He appears to him very famously, a very famous scene. He appears to him in the form of a burning bush, and he's communicating with Moses in this way. And Moses is asking, rightly, he's skeptical. He's asking, rightly, so who are you? I mean, who, who, are, who do I tell? So you're telling me I'm going to go back to Egypt, and, and I'm going to tell the king of Egypt to let these people go. Who do I tell these people that you are? And God answers, he said, well, when you tell them who sent you, just say, tell them that I am, I am sent you. And he continues, verse 15 of chapter 3, Exodus 3, 15, God continues, and God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, and when you see Lord in all caps like that, that is the covenant name for the God of Israel, Yahweh. That's the Hebrew word that you see there when you see Lord in all caps. Tell the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. So when Moses asks God who he is, who are you and who is it that I tell The Israelites sent me. It's important to God that he conveys to Moses and that he knows that he is the same God who originally came to and spoke to their forefather Abraham, to the founder of the Israelite people. He needs him to know that he's the God of Abraham. He's the God of his son Isaac. He's the the God of his son Jacob. He is the same God through generation, from generation to generation. My name is Yahweh. I am the covenant God. I established a covenant with your ancestor Abraham, and it's it's still me. You may have forgotten about me, but I have not forgotten about you. I see you in slavery, and I'm here for you. This is the first and foundational idea that God conveys to Moses about who he is. He is a God who is the same generation to generation. And as we move through time, as we move through the story of the scripture, and as we zoom out, and as we think about human civilization and how it's moved forward, age to age, civilization to civilization, As kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, as leaders are born and leaders die, as generations come and generations go, God remains the same. This is important. This is important to remember because our circumstances as human beings change. We live a very different existence than Moses and the people who lived in that generation 
who, who went through the experience of coming out of slavery in Egypt. We live in very different circumstances, and the circumstances of our children and the coming generations will be different. But we believe our faith is based on a God who is the same, generation to generation. And the story of Scripture, as it unfolds, what we see is that this God comes to human beings. The the Bible is full of stories of people who have encountered God in their own unique ways, in their own unique times, in their generations, in their circumstances. God is personal. God is personal. He comes and he draws people into relationship with himself, calls people into a love relationship with him. So faith has always been personal, individual. But God is also calling people who come to faith in him into a communal relationship with one another. Our faith is communal. God's people are to be characterized by love. Love for God and love for one another. And this is important. Relationship with this God is both personal and it's communal. And as Christians... As people who've continued to read the story and came to what we believe is the climax of the story of the Bible in the person of Jesus, we believe that Jesus was God's ultimate fulfillment and expression of love, his ultimate move towards humanity, God taking on flesh in the form of Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity coming and living in Jesus to show what a love relationship with God and with others looked like, with flesh on. And Jesus lived, he died, and he was resurrected to reconcile us to God and to one another. And he invited people, come and follow me, follow this way. Believe that my death and my resurrection makes a way for you as well. And as he did that, he drew together people, Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, Old and young, slave people, free people, rich people, poor people. He was creating a community we know as the church, but it was to be a community of difference, not sameness. And the Christian faith, as has always been, as faith in Yahweh has always been, is personal. We all have to choose each day in our own circumstances, in our own time, in our own generation, in our own context, what it looks like to follow the way of Jesus. What does it look like as we're formed into the kind of people who live the kind of life that Jesus lived? What does it look like to live that in our own life, in our own time, in our own place? For each one of us, it looks different. Depending on what stage of life you're in, if you're married, if you're single, if you're a business person or you're a student, if you're in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, if you're a Gen Xer, if you're a millennial, if you're a silent generation person. But God is not just forming individuals. He's forming a community. God has always been about forming us as individuals into a community of people. He chose Abraham and his family and through the generations Ultimately, it culminated in the life of Jesus who called people to come together and be part of this new family, family of the church. 
And throughout the writings, what we see is people come to faith in Jesus. They join and become part of this new community, and they're accepted regardless of where they come from. Skipping to the New Testament, we can read what Paul had to say about what this new community was supposed to look like. Paul was a leader in the early church, and in the first century, nearly 2,000 years ago, he wrote this letter to a group of friends, another church, a gathering of Christ followers, a, a gathering of Jesus followers in the, in the area of Galatia. And he said this, Galatians 3, 26, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. To which we might add, there is no boomer or millennial. No Gen X or Gen Z. No generation is the greatest and no generation is silent to God. There is no, neither young punk nor old fart. <laughs> Paul continues, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. God's plan has always been to draw people to himself into personal relationship with him, and into redeemed, restored relationships with one another, even people who are different. And make no mistake, that is not natural. That is not the natural order of things. That is not the way that our instincts, that is not the way that the culture or the world around us has ever drawn human beings to think or to act we value and gravitate towards sameness. In his book, another great book that I read last year, a book called The Second Mountain, um, author David Brooks gives some great insight into it. It's a secondary point for him in the book, but I think it's a great insight into what our natural proclivity is as human beings. Listen to this quote. He says, People who are experiencing existential dread slip into crisis mode. I'm in danger. I'm threatened. I must strike back. Their evolutionary response is self-protection. So they fall back on ancient instincts for how to respond to a threat. Us versus them. Tribalists seek out easy categories in which some people are good and others are bad. They seek out certainty to conquer their feelings of unbearable doubt. They seek out war, political war, or actual war as a way of giving life meaning. They revert to tribe. Tribalism seems like a way to restore the bonds of community. It certainly does bind people together. But it is actually the dark twin of community. Community is connection based on mutual affection. Tribalism, in the sense that I'm using it here, is connection based on mutual hatred. Community is based on common humanity. Tribalism on common foe. Tribalism is always erecting boundaries and creating friend-enemy distinctions. And this is what I think is happening around us today. Because of technology factors, because of mobility, we have become separated and isolated from one another. And in the face of real and perceived threats, economic threats, political threats, actual threats of war, we all feel anxiety, and that anxiety calls us to do something. We feel alone, and what do we do? 
our natural response is to reach to those who are like us, people who think the same ideologically as we do, people who look the same as us, and people who are roughly the same age and in the same generation as us. We look at people who are different, often people in different generations, older or younger, and we see difference. We didn't do it that way when we were their age. Those old people don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what life is like today. We perceive the difference as a threat, or we make that other group of people a scapegoat, and we blame them for everything from global warming to the death of Applebee's. And we just respond by creating boundaries, drawing lines that define friend and foe based on where you fall. Are you in or are you out? But make no mistake, this is not the way of Jesus. Jesus does not lead us this way. This is not the gospel. There is no good news in this way. There is no life in this way. This way, madness lies. So over the next seven weeks, as we come together on Sundays, all of us together, a mix and a slew of generations in this room, we're going to explore what it would look like for us to push against this tribal way of thinking, this us and them way of thinking as it comes to generations. What would it look like for us to embrace this idea that, that we're not just a church of people from different ages who actually just come together on Sundays to worship together, what if we began to pursue what it would look like to live in intergenerational community with one another, learning and growing from people of different ages with different perspectives and different outlooks? What would that look like? I'm excited to think about how that could transform us as a community to be really begin contending for that, but I'm also excited to think about how that might change our lives outside of just this church. As we begin to learn to value intergenerational relationships, how that might, how that might change your family dynamics, how, how that might actually change the dynamics of people that you live with in your neighborhood, how might that change the people, the relationships with the people that you work with. But for that to happen, it's not going to be easy. We all will have to, in our own ways, have the courage to look ourselves in the mirror and see the biases that we've been ignoring to see the ways that we've looked down on or created enemies, drawn lines and distinctions between people of different ages and different generations than us. It'll take a lot of courage and a lot of humility. So I'm excited for the next seven weeks. I hope you'll keep coming back and be part of it. Let's pray as we close this morning that God would give us that courage and that humility as we, take this, as we begin this journey together. Heavenly Father, Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you are the same from generation to generation. As we sit in this room in 2020, we recognize that the entire span of human history is just a blip, just a moment from your perspective. You see it all because you created us and you understand, you see the entire scope of human history in this place. Lord, we can become so wrapped up, so myopic, so focused on what's happening around us, and we can lose sight of who you are and what you're doing across the generations. God, give us the courage to look at ourselves and to look at the world around us and to say, we're going to choose to live differently. I'm going to choose to live differently. I'm going to choose to value 
people who are different than me, people who are older than me, people who are younger than me, people who have different perspectives than me, may look different, act different, think differently than me. Give us the courage and the humility over the coming weeks, Lord, that we might become a people who follow the way of Jesus and who embrace those among us who are different from us. We pray these things through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.